From Chapel Hill Public Library, this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. Community history from the inside out and bottom up. The conductor, he knew my mother and my father. So he said, Say, you little fellas want to ride? Well, that's all we knew, that we've been going out there all the time. <laughs> we've been going there all the time. So we both said yes at the same time. And Lord, that was heaven to me. I, I can't, I can't even explain now how the, the feeling that gave me to ride on train. I'm Mandela Young, and I'm Molly Luby. Today we're talking about one of Chapel Hill's most beloved musical artists. She has real roots here having grown up in what was then called the West End. Her song Freight Train has become an enduring classic and has been covered by the likes of Peter, Paul and Mary, Jerry Garcia, Mike Seeger, Taj Mahal, and others. We're talking about Elizabeth Cotton. And just a note before we get started, we'll be referring to her throughout this episode as Elizabeth Cotton, not her popular nickname Libba. When she was born, her parents couldn't agree on a name. So for the first years of her life, she went by the nicknames Babe, Lil Sis, Short, and sometimes just Sis. It wasn't until she went to school and her teacher asked for her name that she proudly declared Elizabeth. So throughout this episode, we'll be honoring that choice that she made and using the name that she gave herself. When we were first conceiving of this episode... We just so happened to be looking through some old audio recordings in the Chapel Hill Historical Society. They had a box of old cassette tapes, and on one of those tapes, we found the name Elizabeth Cotton. And it was an audio recording dating back from the 1970s. Yeah, it was a little bit of a mystery at first. Um, there were only a few details in terms of like context of conducting the interview that were included on the tape. And since we didn't really have anything else to go on, like that was initially all we knew about it. Today is July 5th, 1976, and we hope to get a interview with Elizabeth Cotton about her days in Chapel Hill. Brent Glass was listed as the interviewer for this tape, and I was able to track him down. In 1976, he was a UNC grad student and was working with the Chapel Hill Historical Society to record some of the histories of Carborough. Because of his background with the Southern Oral History Program, he was asked to interview Elizabeth Cotton when she came to town for the first ever North Carolina Folk Festival. The tape was notable because it was probably one of the few oral histories that focused on her time here in Chapel Hill and Carborough. But what really grabbed my attention was a story that she told about a murder that happened in her community when she was a child. She talked about how she and the other neighborhood kids turned the story into a song. And I stopped singing the song because I come to Chapel Hill after that, and who should that told me that Johnson met you? That's the one. That's the killer. I said, well, I better stop singing this song because I, I want to go back to Chapel Hill and I don't want him to shoot me. <laughs> and what, I stopped singing it. What was the song? Well, it was uh, about Johnson said to Willie, it was on one Friday night. 
It shows you kind of my father's house and going to take your life. Then it said, Willie went to his father's house, was on one Saturday Eve. Johnson shot that poor boy and it fell up on his knees. It's a pretty song. We all made verses in it. We'll talk more about that song and her story later, but it's really just one example of how Cotton's childhood here inspired so much of her music. That's one thing that Brent Glass asks about in the interview as well. Was Freight Train about the train here in Chapel Hill, or was it? Yeah, about this, that little two-coach two train. <laughs> Did you write any other songs about Chapel Hill? No. Did them? Well, we did what about a woman that lives in this town? That's sort of that's about one lady in Chapel Hill. Uh-huh. The one um, old lady that lives in this town. Oh, baby, it ain't no lie. Yeah, that's yeah. good. See, I don't remember. That's that's. Oh, baby, that. it ain't no lie. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the graduation song came from Chapel Hill. That's my weakness. I don't remember. So here they're talking about graduation march and oh, baby, ain't no lie. I obviously listened to a lot of Elizabeth Cotton songs just on YouTube while I was doing research and working on this episode. And there was one that comes up. It's a video of her in concert in which she plays Oh Baby Ain't No Lie and actually explains some of the backstory from it. My mother worked all the time. And this lady lived next door to us. I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My mother go out to work every morning and this lady next door, Miss Mary, She'd look, out, look on the children when the mothers go to work. So she told my mother one time that I talked back to her, I sassed her. My mother didn't like her children to, to talk back to old people, you know, older people. And I, I was afraid to do it. I wouldn't do a thing like that then. I don't know what I might do now. <laughs> my mother punished me. And this lady, Miss Mary, I thought a lot of her. I, I just loved her, but, but when she told my mother that on me, I didn't feel towards her like I always did. <laughs> now listen. There is one old woman, Lord, in this town, keep her telling her lies on me. I wish to my soul that old woman would die. Keep her telling her lies on me. I'd sit on the end of our porch in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I'd play and sing this song as loud as I wanted to. And she would say to me, they called me Sis. And she said, little sis, that song is a pretty song. Well, you know what I'd want to say, don't you know? Don't you know what I'd want to say? It's about you, but I couldn't say it. <laughs> oh, baby, ain't no lie. I'm living is very high. My mother died. She didn't know what this was about. I was dancing to let her know this song was about Miss Mary. Miss Mary died, and she didn't know it was about her. So now they both is dead, and I'm playing singing as much as I want. <laughs> Thank you.
it's her sitting on a small stage with her guitar and then surrounded by all these young people who are kind of just sitting on the ground and in some risers in the background and they're just delighted by it, right? They're in fits by the end of the story. But UNC folklorist Glenn Hinson hears something else in this story as well. And she follows it with a line that says, no, this life I'm living is very hard. And we think about what was the life near the railroad tracks in that little community called West End. Most of the women were scratching by doing domestic work for white mill workers. Ms. Louise Nevels, who was Elizabeth Cotton's mother, was one of those women. She was doing domestic work for essentially poor white folk who themselves were deep, deep working poor. Elizabeth Cotton would have been growing up just at the turn of the century, just outside of Chapel Hill. And that first decade that she would have been growing up in saw a massive propaganda campaign by Southern Democrats as a means to regain political control and reassert white supremacy. By the time she was, what, around five years old in 1898, that's when the Wilmington massacre and coup happened. So we think about that. We think about when she talks about living down here is very hard and think, okay, at 11, she's working part-time earning 75 cents a month. Within two years, by age 13, she's working full-time as a domestic servant. You know, it's a part of the story that we don't think about. And she spends her next 50 years, essentially, as a domestic servant. That's the side of Miss Cotton's life that when we focus on the music, I think we tend to forget that this artistry was one of these remarkable marks of resilience in the midst of a life which was so terribly hard for so terribly long. And she was working as a domestic when she was quote-unquote discovered, too. So she got married around the age of 15 and had her first and only child shortly afterwards. It was kind of in this part of her life where she really stopped playing music. And that was really having to do with both the pressures of the church to stick to gospel and also having to do with the new responsibilities of being a wife and mother. Shortly afterwards, she and her husband moved to Washington, D.C., like many other African Americans during this time, looking for more and better opportunities. And there's so much that we don't know about her life in this period of time. So it really isn't until decades later that Elizabeth Cotton gets a job working for the Seeger family, She was working at a department store at the time in Washington, D.C., and happened to reunite a young Peggy Seeger with her mother, Ruth Crawford Seeger. The older Mrs. Seeger essentially gave Elizabeth Cotton her business card and said, call me if you want a job. 
And this is how she became employed with the Seeger family, doing domestic work again, right? But the Seegers were this incredibly musical family. So when Peggy Seeger walked in on Elizabeth Cotton playing her guitar and Elizabeth Cotton started apologizing for touching it in the first place, the Seeger children were excited about learning this new music. And the older Seegers, when they found out about her talent, were able to supply the connections that were really essential in starting her music career. It's painful to think about the series of coincidences and luck that gifted the world with Elizabeth Cotton and her music because I it just makes me think of of how how much talent and how many gifts have been lost in our local history and our national history. Right. And in another act of coincidence, her employment with the Seekers coincided with this renewed interest in blues and folk music. Here's Dr. Henson again. And we're talking now moving out of the idealized worlds of 1950s white suburban America at a time when the civil rights movement moves to the fore in ways that uh, were probably more apparent to much of white America than had been a decade earlier. And so, so at this time, in the midst of the civil rights movement, a lot of young whites disaffected with the world that they had been offered began looking backwards to celebrate the grassroots music making of a generation earlier. Now listen. Oh, Georgie Buck. Oh, Georgie Buck. Oh, Georgie Buck said so. Georgie Buck is dead. Last word he said. There was this very romantic vision of blackness that was being presented again largely through the music making and voices of black elders and not through the music making and voices of for instance, those who are on the front lines of the civil rights movement of the day, or those who are creating vibrant musics that were that would challenge a lot of these romantic notions of blackness. You know, Ms. Cotton fit within a set of stereotypes that many of those who were involved at the time in what what has been called the folk revival and many of those who continue to celebrate her life now the celebration is a celebration that presents her as this very sweet gentle grandmotherly african-american woman in a way that completely fits white stereotypes about elderly black women. When one looks at what is written about Miss Cotton, when one looks at the memorials in her memory that 
all of those bring out and emphasize this this very particular image. I think that's that's probably nowhere more evident than in Syracuse itself, where the city erected a monument to her. You know, there's a statue of Elizabeth Cotton from the waist up, playing left-handed on her guitar. There is a bronze plaque that gives her name. And the bronze plaque says, and all it says is Libba. I think it is kind of ironic that a nickname given to her by Penny Seeger when the girl was too young to pronounce Elizabeth, like this name has become a primary way that she's known. Her name really means something. The fact that her name, Elizabeth, is one she chose for herself, the fact that she never referred to herself as Libba, and the fact of her position when she was given that nickname, those things all together um, point to something we really should pay attention to. Historically, white folks, especially those raised in the South, refused to use courtesy titles when referring to black people. The social structures and conventions of Jim Crow meant that all white people, regardless of age, could call all black people, regardless of their age, by their first name. And so when a white child refers to a black woman, especially an elder in the household, by her first name, that really is Jim Crow at work. Here's Glenn Hinson again. I would imagine that for her, this was a remarkable opportunity. This was the first time. Here's a woman who is, I guess, in her 60s at this point. And she is finally able to not be doing domestic service. And suddenly she finds herself being able to live for the very first time as an artist. And when I call Radler, I want y'all to say, here, here. I'll say, here, Radler, here, here, here. And being recognized as an artist. There's one more I'd like you to play called the Spanish Flandang. And tell us a little bit about the song. Here's someone who spent the majority of her life in the service of white folks, where learning the art of wearing the mask was absolutely essential to survival. In doing the research for this episode, I scoured the internet for any audio or video that I could find of Elizabeth Cotton talking about her life. And in all my research, there's only one instance that I could find, at least, of when she talks about Jim Crow explicitly and the limitations that were put on her. I never did run into things like that because I know what they want you to do and I just do what they want you to do. If you go to look for a job, you wouldn't go in their front door. That was, I knew that, see? So it makes complete sense to me that now that she's on this very new path, that she wouldn't be talking a lot about those times. She wouldn't be bringing that up necessarily in interviews because 
her audiences are white and the interviewers are all white and she's she's back in a familiar place in that sense her story has been simplified the difficult and painful parts have been ignored or erased it's part of a common tradition in folk hero mythology that completely leaves out the questions and issues of race and the struggle that so many women faced as a result of being born black in the Jim Crow South. Not just issues of race, but also of being a woman during this time. And also, like Dr. Henson explains, it's like she left us all these clues in her songs about what her life was like. In a lot of ways, she chronicled what life was like in her community, essentially telling us if we were willing to listen. And I think one of the best examples is in one of her less popular songs. It's called Willie, and it tells the true story of a young man in Chapel Hill who shot and killed his best friend in September of 1905. This is the story that she told Brent Glass back in 1976, and the story I couldn't stop thinking about. They had an argument up, they call it uptown from where I live, and Johnson didn't know how to take jokes. He'd take everything serious, whatever you tell him. I got a son-in-law like that. You might say, uh, John, I saw your wife out there. Now, he'd believe it. You know, he'd just get all fussed, just couldn't stand it, you know? Well, Johnson was the same with him. Willie was teasing him, teasing him about his girl. He found out, this is, it's a true story. Willie was teasing him up there, he was teasing him. Every night they get up there, he would tease him. Oh, I was with Lydia last night, that's a girl's name. I was with her. Boy, she likes me better than she do you. And he believed it. And Willie was his best bosom friend. So he told him, this was on Friday night. They had this big argument. He says, Willie, Next time you come to my house, I'm going to kill you. He meant it. And Willie says, oh, I know you ain't going to do that to me, Johnson. You know, and this tease on. All right. Sure enough, that was on Friday night. On Saturday, God knows, one of the worst times I ever heard, I think, in my life. My mother went outside that evening, that evening after the storm. And she was standing in the yard. I was standing on my porch. This is true. Willie come by with a white shirt. Me and used to tuck the shirt collars in, you know, mm-hmm. and wear them low. My mother says to him, Willie, come go to the store for Aunt Lou. He was smoking. He stubbed his cigarette. He said, Aunt Lou, he said, I'm on my way up here to see Johnson, and I'll go for you when I come back. She's not knowing anything. Mama just says, all right, boy, you're going to be sorry you didn't go to the store for me. All right, Willie went on up the street. After he was gone, about as long as I've been talking to you, Mr. Jesse Kirkland, the man I'm telling you had the store up there on that corner, he come down and called, tell Ed, that's Willie's father, tell Ed Johnson shot Willie. And when Ed got the message, here's what he said. He didn't stop sitting out his plane. He said, well, if he'd have stayed home and done what his mother told him to do, it wouldn't have happened. And it, that's true. He didn't know his child was dead. He was dead. Just dead. Just killed him just like that. 
I found reports on the shooting in a couple of local newspapers, um, but for the most part, it was only like a paragraph long crime bulletin. The killing was reported in the Wilmington Weekly Star uh, on a page with other headlines like Gang of Negroes Would Do Violence to Young Lee River Bark White and Sensational Shooting Among Colored People at Sixth and Nixon Last Night. And about a week later, the Statesville Record and Landmark reported that Johnson Merritt, quote, was discharged, there being no evidence to show that the killing was not accidental. So, again, thinking about the context, it's it's not really a surprise that newspapers in the area, especially, you know, these being, for the most part, all white newspapers, either simplified or sensationalized the story. But in a lot of ways, Cotton's version humanizes it. Johnson said to Willie on one Friday night, sure you come to my father's house, so you take your life. Ain't it hard, Lord? Ain't it hard? Willie went to his father's house on one Saturday evening. Johnson shot that old boy, fell up on his knee. Ain't it hard, Lord? It's told from the vantage point of someone close to the incident with remorse and empathy for the killer and a real mourning for the victim. Oh Lord on me, oh Lord on mine, I shot little Willie Lord, he's bound to die, ain't it hard Lord, ain't it hard. But I'm thinking about how it's part of this um, tradition um, in blues music of, 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 of retelling of these real life incidences. It's a way of sharing the history and the stories of a community. It's like a way of remembering and memorializing this part of community history especially when you think about the institutions that were dedicated to you know preserving history and telling history and recording it these all these white newspapers they were doing it a complete disservice they really reduce it into four sentences and this is one way of truly honoring and remembering those people and remembering the effect that it had on that community It's a story and a song about a lived experience, and it's all there in her songs. She really does tell us exactly what her life was like, what life would have been like for so many young Black girls growing up here at the turn of the century. And all we really have to do is listen. I went to the country, gave me a drink of gin. When I got there, Lord, police took me in. From Chapel Hill Public Library and the town of Chapel Hill, I'm Molly Luby. I'm Mandela Young, and this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. 
go to chapelhillhistory.org to see show notes, listen to the soundtrack for this episode, and learn more about Elizabeth Cotton. And one last thing, just this week here in October 2020, artist Scott Nurkin has finished a gorgeous new mural of Elizabeth Cotton at 111 North Merritt Mill Road, located right on the Chapel Hill Carborough line. We'll link to photos of the mural in our show notes, but if you can, definitely go check it out in person. The mural is part of the North Carolina Musicians Mural Project, a statewide mural trail envisioned by the artist. This new project includes John Coltrane in Hamlet, North Carolina, Earl Scruggs in Shelby, and Roberta Flack in Black Mountain. There'll be lots more coming soon too. The Elizabeth Cotton mural was made possible through a collaboration among the towns of Carborough, Chapel Hill, and the Chapel Hill Downtown Partnership. It's really breathtaking. Okay, thanks for listening, y'all.